Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Jehocraft, coming to you from... KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening, reflecting to the great ancient Christian thinkers. We are in the 4th century still, uh, maybe going a little bit into the early 5th century. Uh, This evening, we will take up St. John Chrysostom. And uh, as I do each and every Tuesday, I have John O'Hara with me. So, John, it is great to have you with me another evening. Thank you again, Joe. John, I want to... uh, continue to especially welcome our listeners from uh, the international arena in countries like Brazil, Portugal, Spain, Chile, Bolivia, Italy, and others. It really is an honor that you are carving out time out of your busy schedules uh, for us. And so uh, we just appreciate that, and we hope that your time with us is well spent. With that, John, what I wanted to do was get into this great figure, St. John Chrysostom. Of the countries you just mentioned, I have been to Chile and have been to Mass there. Okay. 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 Uh, St. John Chrysostom, yes, he was uh, born about 347, died for sure in 407 on uh, September the 14th, uh, 407. Here's a quote from William Juergen's book on Fathers of the Church. Some will say that John Chrysostom is unparalleled anywhere while others will say that he is matched only by Augustine. To compare levels of greatness is a foolish task which can end only in a slighting sum. (laughs) So of John, let us believe only that he was utterly unique and there is none other like him. Mm. What a guy. Mm. Now, he was born in southern Turkey. His father was an army officer and died when his mother was 20 years old, leaving young John. And the mother raised him, and boy, did she do a good job. (laughs) I would like to pay some homage to the mother, Anthusa. Mm -hmm. And uh, she just did a great job of raising him, and she she sensed he was quite bright, and she gave him a very good education. She got a man named Labanus to teach him rhetoric. That was one of the Mm go-to majors of the day, if you Mm -hmm. want to put it that way. And a man named Anthragogius, a Greek philosopher. So he had a very good education. And uh, he was baptized at age 18, not at all uncommon, I guess, in those times, to Mm -hmm. wait until you're an adult. And uh, he then discerned uh, a tend towards religion, and he went into uh, to be a hermit, uh, a monk, for several years. And he lived in a cave as a hermit. And uh, one of my accounts said he he, he never slept lying down, which means he had to sleep sitting up. The cave was quite damp, and his health deteriorated. He lived to age 60. That now He may have had some lung problems and intestinal problems as a result of that damp youth he spent in that cave. Anyway, he came out, and uh, he went to the city to improve his health, and he was ordained a deacon, mm-hmm. and then he was ordained a priest at age 38. So he was a deacon for about six years, then, then a priest, and then he was made a bishop 12 years later. I think during that time when he was a priest in the Turkey area, uh, they were all Greeks in Turkey at the time, he had quite a reputation as a homilist of just, I mean, he was a celebrity priest yeah, and everybody yeah. loved him and he was mm. quite the to-do. <laughs> and then he was um, made a bishop on on February the 26th, 398 was his ordination day. 
and he was made the Bishop of Constantinople. That is the capital of the Eastern Empire of the Roman Empire. Rome at that time had two capitals, one in Rome actually had moved to Ravenna, and then Constantinople. And the two got along pretty well. Mm -hmm. He's the Bishop of Constantinople, and we again we have politics and the church combating back and forth. Mm -hmm. And the uh, emperor at the time was a man named Arcadius, a bit feeble-minded, but his wife was not. Uh, I think Eudoxia was her name. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Bishop of Alexandria did not want John to be the Bishop of Constantinople, and he raised a hull of a blue, but he Mm. was the one who eventually (laughs) consecrated him as a bishop. And then the backstabbing began. Mm -hmm. Now, John wanted to clean up his diocese. And the first thing he did is he tried to uh, bring more order to the bishop's house. He cut expenses and gave that money to the poor. Then he wanted to clean up his priest clergy, and he forbade them to have any deaconesses or virgins living in their homes. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what the implications of that were. Mm -hmm. Monks were supposed to uh, live in a monastery-type setting. Mm -hmm. And some of these did not go over well. He was quite strict. The laity liked him quite a bit. He was hard on wealthy people and their dress and their extravagance of money. And Eudoxia thought that he was talking to her. After a while, he was uh, exiled, but it was only for a very short time. There was an earthquake, and they thought this was a sign that he God wanted him, so he came back. Hmm. But then there were other issues, as Eudoxia uh, had a big festival to herself. A silver statue was built for herself. It was placed outside the cathedral. There was all Hmm. kinds of, uh, we'll call them pagan festivals going on. He complained, and this time he was exiled for sure. Mm -hmm. And uh, the exile lasted for a couple of years, and he had to take a trip along the southern coast of the Black Sea to Armenia, essentially, and there he died Mm -hmm. of exposure. Uh, I think he was actually martyred. I mean, they didn't put a knife in him. No, yeah. But he, it was a long walk, and uh, they wouldn't allow him to wear a hat. Hot, hot. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, And he died. Thanks, John. Now, we say St. John Chrysostom, right? Um, But really, initially, he was known as St. John of Antioch. Uh, He's known as St. John Chrysostom because Chrysostom means golden mouth or golden tongue. Of course, that uh, speaks to his great preaching. And and interesting here, it was just a few few days ago that we—it was his feast day, huh? Correct, Uh, it was Saturday. Saturday. Yeah, so as far as timing goes for us, that's very providential. Uh, A number of points here— John, that I think are really important to who he was. Um, You know, as Mike Aquilina makes note in his work, uh, The Fathers of the Church, in his introduction to the first Christian thinkers, he really highlights the importance of uh, St. John Chrysostom and his studies impacting his preaching, okay? Uh, If the school at Alexandria reached its zenith in the allegorical study of Scripture, in the likes of Clement and Origen, John, those figures, those great towering figures that we studied, then its rival school of Antioch, which emphasized, again, the literal, historical, and linguistic analysis of biblical texts, peaked in St. John Chrysostom. Yet, what we must understand is that St. John was no ethereal academic. For him, The power of the sacred text was a power to transform the minute particulars of everyday work, the minutia of all the concreteness and particularities of everyday life. So the method he learned at Antioch for searching out that concrete historical situation 
in our Lord's life, he used equally well in analyzing the concrete existential circumstances of his people, of his congregations. It, it is to say that St. John's homilies hit home. Mike Aquilina makes note, and if you go through all of his homies, you see this, you know, they spoke of the marketplace, the marriage bed, the, the sports arena, cooking, investments, cosmetics, and, and the list goes on. They were practical. He not only described what he saw, but more important, John, he also at the same time prescribed a moral and ascetical course of action. He was an expert uh, in Matthew and in John and in the writings of St. Paul. Mm-hmm. And it is from there that he developed some very practical messages to the people. It wasn't, you know, theoretical type stuff. It was very good. And the golden mouth was appreciated for sure. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. We think today of St. John Chrysostom in many circles as this great catechist. It's, it's really striking to, to note this, John. In many theological circles, people look at him as the great catechist. The thing of it is, he's not the patron saint of catechists. He's the patron saint of preachers, okay? What's the distinction? Well, what does Paul talk about? He talks about this call we have to preach and to teach, essentially to evangelize and to catechize. He's the patron saint, not of catechists. He was a good catechist, a great catechist, but he was first an evangelist. And what it tells us is that all of our catechesis, and for all of you listeners out there who don't know what this word means, this is simply, uh, that is catechesis or catechetics, the handing on of the deposit of faith or the structure of the faith, as Benedict XVI likes to call it. Uh, and again, this would be the, the doctrine of creation, the, the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the incarnation, and so on. So it's just not the person of Jesus Christ, that's first and foremost, always and all the time, but also the teachings that Christ handed on to the apostles. So it's just not about the catechesis, it's also about the evangelization, okay? So what St. John then teaches us is that even within maybe someone's later stage of catechesis, we always have to keep in mind that we should never presuppose the faith when teaching the faith. That's von Balthasar. Von Balthasar says we should never presuppose the faith when teaching the faith. We need to always be present to this call that to no matter what we are teaching, bring that teaching down and so that it can be better understood in light of the person of Jesus Christ. This is what this man was about. Interesting point that I really never thought about before, but should have. Catechesis to me is meant taking someone who is a bit uninstructed in the faith and teaching them the fundamentals of the faith. Mm-hmm. The Catechism of the Catholic Church lays out the doctrine of the Catholic Church. Evangelization is to take someone who has already accepted this and make them a far more powerful witness mm-hmm. of the faith that they have already accepted. Now, that's kind of the way I've... And that's what it yeah. is. And as we think about this, what St. John Chrysostom would teach us, and ultimately, and John Paul II talks about this a great deal as well, in never presupposing the faith... What we are then doing is ultimately bringing the doctrine to the person, but always doing so in light of that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Certainly, there's that moment of evangelization, John. And again, I'm thinking of that great quote from Catechesi Tridente of John Paul II, that when he's talking about evangelization, catechesis, he says this, that evangelization is the ardent proclamation 
of the message of Jesus Christ that overwhelms the person and in turn has them entrusting their lives to Jesus Christ. Okay, so it's, it's moving from the unknowing of Jesus Christ to the now suddenly willing to entrust their lives to Jesus Christ. Yeah. This is essential to the evangelization and catechesis moment. It's interesting, John, as kind of a, a caveat to what we're talking about right now. Pope Benedict, in his key book on the relationship between evangelization catechesis and what catechesis ought to look like, wrote a letter to von Balthasar asking him about this question, and his response to then Cardinal Ratzinger was, my good friend, <laughs> never presuppose the faith when handing on the faith. Oh. <laughs> and, and, and so it's really interesting that we should never assume that just because they're in some RCA program or some catechetical program that they have already been evangelized, uh, because ultimately evangelization never stops. So that being said, what would St. John have us come to appreciate that phrase, evangelizing catechesis. I think Pope Benedict made a comment about he was quite interested in correct doctrine coupled with good rectitude in living. I don't mm -hmm. know if I put it that quite as eloquently as he did, but you know your doctrine and then give the example of it. I mean, I've always personally felt that the best teaching is your actions in life that people can see. Yes, and I'm actually going to go to this quote because that is a good one here, John. Um, and again, looking down at this book, this is uh, Benedict XVI reflecting upon uh, the wisdom of St. John Chrysostom and how he offers up a clear relationship between uh, the knowledge of Jesus Christ and uh, what the faith ought to look like in light of that knowledge of Jesus Christ. St. John Chrysostom is a perfectly pastoral theology in which there is constant concern for consistency between thought expressed via words and existential experience. It is this in particular that forms the main theme of the splendid catechesis with which he prepared catechumens to receive baptism. Both these things, knowledge of truth, and here you go, John, rectitude of life, go hand in hand. Knowledge has to be expressed in life. Knowledge yes. has to be expressed in life. Now, there's something else as we're talking about this. When we were discussing the Cappadocian Fathers, John, we spent a lot of time talking about contemplation and action, okay? Now, for St. John Chrysostom, who, oh, by the way, studied under St. Basil, right, and who was very much influenced by St. Ba Basil, saw that at the heart of who he was. But there's something unique to St. John Chrysostom, and it was this. It is not enough to just give alms and to help the poor sporadically, to do your Good Samaritan act for the day. But it is necessary for St. John Chrysostom to create a new structure, a new model of society, a model based on the outlook of the New Testament revealed for St. John in the book of Acts. It was this new society that was revealed in the newborn church. This is what he saw, John. So St. John Chrysostom thus truly became, and Benedict talks about this, one of the great fathers of the church's social doctrine, where the old idea of the Greek polis, the Greek political structure, gave way to the new idea of a city inspired by Christian faith. What we see here 
is that the primacy of the person is also a consequence of the fact that is that it is truly by starting with the person that the city is built. Whereas in the old Greek vision, huh, <laughs> the homeland took precedence over the individual who was then ultimately totally subordinated to the city as a whole. So it was that a society built on the Christian conscience came into being with Christendom. This is the language of Benedict. And how important is that? You know, okay, so we talk about contemplation and action, John. Quintessential to the Christian, the Catholic life as we've talked about it. But what we need to appreciate is the importance of effecting change person by person, person by person, to the point where society begins to be shaped and formed by Christian values. He had a great education, and then he goes into the monastery, and then he goes into the cave. And he had an active mind, and those years he was there doing prayer, I mean, mm-hmm. actively doing prayer. I don't know all that. That, I think, had a profound, well, had a change on him so that when he came out and went back to preaching, he, he was ready. I mean, I, I liked this man's education, not only the formal education, but the one that he received at his monastery and in his cave. I don't want to use the word fanatic, but I mean, he was very hard on himself. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he was uh, quite orthodox. By the way, the Arian heresy is still around. Surprise, oh, yeah. surprise. Yeah. <laughs> and the bishop that tried to depose him from Alexandria, Theophilus from Alexandria, yeah. was an Arian mm-hmm. and Eudoxia, whatever <laughs> yeah. she was. She was whatever was popular, I think. Yeah, so he, he comes out of this cave, and in these homilies, what is he doing? He's teaching against the Arian thought, which, again, of course, was this de-emphasizing of just not Christ's divinity, but also the divinity of the Holy Spirit. It's important that you bring this up again, John, as it relates to the contemplation and then him wanting maybe to, to, to leave the cave, because if he is known as the great pe- preacher, and it's really interesting because <laughs> you had— you you opened up with that quote. We have to be careful about talking about great, greater, and greatest because yes. you can slight so many. And yet here we have the golden mouth, the golden tongue. I mean, we've talked about the great orators already, and to some extent, for better or worse, some have called him the greatest of the great, right? <laughs> Whether we should or not. Uh, and where does that come from? Where does that fire, that enthusiasm, uh, that ardor, that zeal, all of those words, where does it come from? It comes out from his relationship with God, his contemplative way of life, and how his whole life was actuated in union with the Holy Spirit. Benedict notes this. He left those caves on fire for God. The Holy Spirit shoved him forth. I think in his words, the Holy Spirit launched him forth. Uh, and, And why? Because he saw the importance. He saw the importance of pastoring souls. We have seen with some of these other saints, some of these other church fathers, John, that they would prefer not to be uh, speaking before people. That was not necessarily the case, not in some prideful way for St. John. No, no, no. He heard that call from God, shepherd my people, and he responded to that call. And he lived it so well. And I, as I read about him, I just kind of... God, this guy was the real McCoy, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, he yeah. really—it was right there, you know. I, I when I think about his death, I mean, it went on. He had to take the long walk, and he kept writing letters. 
He was completely exonerated by the Pope after his death. His body, by the way, now rests in St. Peter's in Rome, mm-hmm. was in Constantinople for a while. But um, he was revered right after his death, and the people loved him. You know, not some of the well-to-do, but the people liked him, and he seemed to, he knew what was right for that diocese. Mm-hmm. You know, let, let's get back to the authentic Christian approach to Christ. Amen. Yeah, as the story goes, um, you know, there'd be lines. Imagine if we saw this today, you know, lines outside these churches because so many people wanted to hear the priest talk. I mean, he was so eloquent and at the same time so on fire for God. It was like this magnet, huh? I mean, where there would literally be lines for blocks just to hear him speak. Uh, Striking. And uh, oh, by the way, John... For all of us who complain about 10, 12, 15, 20-minute homilies, St. John of then Antioch would preach for two hours during Mass. Now, it was not entirely uncommon to hear someone preach for quite some time, for, but for two hours, and, and to have people look forward to that. Boy, how have uh, times changed? <laughs> While I'm thinking, maybe just a footnote to our conversation here, John, beforehand, you had made note that... Uh, uh, now St. John the 23rd had made him the patron saint. Yes, uh, John the 23rd named him the patron saint of the Second Vatican Council in mm-hmm. 1958. Yeah. And, uh, or, well, whenever he announced it, he, he became mm-hmm. Pope in 58. Um, and he was the patron saint of Vatican II. And I find that very important, John, because as we have talked about a great deal on this radio program, Vatican II, in the world of launching, Vatican II launched what we call today the New Evangelization, which in many ways is essentially that interior renewal of faith. And out from that interior renewal comes that fire and love and passion for God. It is fitting that Saint one Saint John Christism is the patron saint of Vatican II. John, I wanted to get into some subject matter here. He has, well, so many great pieces. In particular, he talks about the importance of husbands uh, loving their wives. Okay, so I just want to read a little bit here and then just maybe reflect briefly with our uh, remaining time. He says this, and this is a a homily he had given on Ephesians uh, where he focused on Christian marriage. He says, a certain wise man set this down in the rank of a blessing, a wife agreeing with her husband. Elsewhere, again, he sets it down among blessings that a woman should dwell in harmony with her husband. And indeed, from the beginning, God appears to have made special provision for this union, and discoursing of the twain is one. He said, thus, male and female created he them. Indeed, this love is more despotic than any despotism. For others, indeed, may be strong, but this passion is not only strong, but unfading. For there is a certain love deeply seated in our nature, which imperceptibly knits together these bodies of ours. Thus, even from the very beginning, woman sprang from man, and afterwards from man, and woman sprang both man and woman. Do you see the close bond and connection? He goes on to say, as it relates from husband to wife, praise her. But not for her beauty. I like this, John. Praise and hatred and love based on physical beauty belong to unchaste souls. Seek instead for beauty of soul. Imitate the bridegroom of the church. Outward beauty is full of conceit and great license and throws men into jealousy and itself often makes you suspect monstrous things. But has it any pleasure 
for the first or second month, perhaps, or at most for the year, but then no longer. Familiarity wastes away the admiration. Meanwhile, the evils which arose from the beauty still abide, the pride, the folly, the contemptuousness. But in one who is not this way, there is nothing of this kind. Since the love began on just grounds, it remains ardent. Its object is beauty of soul and not of body. That was inspiring. I had not heard that, Joe. Yeah. Uh, it remi- you know, we, uh, the city of God, which he would like to have formed, and I think of our contemporary writers today on secularism, that would make a good society made of sound families with children well-raised. And when I compare that to what I see today, Oh, John, (laughs) come and talk to us. (laughs) Amen, I like the way you put that. It's interesting, John. On the whole business of husbands relating to wives, why are we so quick to accuse St. Paul of justifying male domination? Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands. Well, you isolate that text from its context, and man, that's, that's about male domination, huh? But in reality... What is Paul saying? Well, what else does he say? <laughs> husbands. <laughs> husbands, love your wives yes. as Christ loved his church. I don't know about you, John, but that vocation is not about male domination. In mm-hmm. fact, when we read wives submit to your husbands, it could read wives allow your husbands to serve you. Christ's headship, Christian headship is rooted in service sacrifice. We've lost a more authentic interpretation of the biblical text, and what St. John Chrysostom is talking about there is essentially one and the same with what Paul wants us to see, this call that men have to serve their wives. John, this call that all husbands have to look upon their wives and to gaze at their beauty and to see it not just reduced to their sexual values— but to see it in light of the whole person, to see the beauty of their soul, to see the beauty of their goodness. This is what gives life to the domestic church. This is why the family, as the cell to society, when it enters into this deeper vocation to see the beauty of the soul, gives shape and form to a Christian society. Yeah, I mean... Love is based in service, not in my rights. Yeah, yeah. Amen to that, John. Well, I think we're out of time, John. It seemingly went by really fast this evening. I don't know why. But uh, I just want to encourage our listeners out there to read the works of St. John Chrysostom because uh, we didn't really note it, John, but uh, we have as much on St. John Chrysostom as we pretty much do on any of the Church Fathers. His homilies, his writings, his discourses— uh, so a lot is to be had there. We just only scratched the surface and not even that with um, our short excerpt this evening. But we did want to give you a sense of what this man was about. Let us close in prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program 
or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.